We're in Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, verses 18 to 21 this morning. But for context, I'm going to read from verse 12 to 21. You along with me. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, for this word, for all the principles contained in herein. And even for the circumstances which you have ordained for the Apostle Paul, his whole life and the circumstances in which he explains and alludes to here in this passage from which we gain these teachings, these principles. Lord, as we look at this passage, please open up our hearts and minds to receive instruction. Help us to understand, help us to remember, and help us to apply these words to our lives. And Lord, as I preach your word, as I teach your word, I pray that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people, For your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we've been looking at this letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, we've seen um, that he is writing, as most of us know, um, from prison. He's in house arrest in Rome. It's, It's not a deep, dark dungeon as he would later be imprisoned in, in his second imprisonment, but he has a a bit of freedom. Um, People can come and go and and visit him, and uh, he's able to write letters, and he's able to um, have visitors, and and people come, and he can uh, disciple them and and even uh, train people up, as we see as Epaphroditus, who is from the church at Philippi, comes to him. Uh, The church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to see how Paul was doing in his imprisonment, and then he, in turn, uh, brings this letter back to uh, Philippi. 
And uh, Paul is there in this Roman prison in house arrest. He's, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7 to the Praetorian guard to essentially uh, this elite group of soldiers, this, uh, each one being a centurion. And he writes to them, he writes to them this thank you letter in a sense. This, this whole letter is a thank you letter to the church at Philippi for their support for the Apostle Paul as they... Um, send money to him to help support him in his basic needs, but also for their prayers uh, on uh, his behalf. And so he writes what is, in a sense, a, a thank you letter. And throughout this whole letter, as, as many have um, written about it, comment, commented on it, and uh, preached about it, that the main theme is one of joy. And we see Paul alludes to joy. He, he talks about rejoicing. He even says in this, in verse 18, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, in chapter 4, he, he tells the Philippians who rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The joy is throughout this whole passage, this whole uh, letter. Um, and another theme we see is, is one of thanksgiving. We see one of thanksgiving. We also see the theme of fellowship or, or partnership. But this main theme of joy and rejoicing, it, it stands out. And not just rejoicing in the Lord, but in, in the Lord in spite of your circumstances, however bad they may be. And Paul emulates this as he's here in prison or on house arrest, and, and he doesn't know. He's awaiting trial. He's awaiting trial um, for uh, what happened in Jerusalem, that he went to Jerusalem, and um, the Jews had, in a sense, uh, gathered a mob, uh, saying this, this man preaches against the fathers, against our, our religion, against the traditions, against the temple. And they create a mob. They stirred up a mob. They, they, they were going to kill him. He ended up um, being held in prison there in Caesarea um, in Israel for about two years. And then he was shipped off to Rome. And then now he's in Rome. He's awaiting trial because he had appealed to Caesar to have his case be brought before Caesar. So that's what he's doing here. He's awaiting trial, and he doesn't know what the outcome of that trial will be. It could be uh, capital punishment. It could be death. It could be release. It could be some other form of punishment. But whatever the case may be, he, he's uncertain. Yet he's still able to do some sort of ministry. He's still able to pray. He's still able to right he's still able to disciple he evangelizes the um the roman guardsmen so that even as he says in uh verse 13 um or verse 12 rather that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my chains in christ have become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard into everyone else that because he's put in this um predicament He's able to reach people that he would not have otherwise been able to reach. He's, he's put in a context where he can uh, influence uh, Caesar's household and those that are closest to Caesar's, the, the elite praetorian guard, and, and not just the guardsmen, but maybe all the administrators in the, the higher echelons of the Roman government. And he sees this. He sees this. 
this providence of God as we looked at a couple weeks ago in, in the message I titled Providence Favors the Gospel, that providence always works out to uh, advance the gospel, to advance God's plans. And then last week we saw how um, he writes in verse 15 to 18 that um, those brothers, those other ministers in Rome, because of his imprisonment, that some of them were preaching actually against Paul. They were still preaching the gospel, but they're, in a sense, uh, using Paul's imprisonment as a an opportunity to gain more influence for themselves. Their, their, uh, their motives weren't pure. But yet, Paul says uh, in verse 18 um, that he still, he still rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, whether it's from impure motives or from pure motives. And, and then he goes on, he, he continues that theme of rejoicing in his circumstances as he um, gets to these next few verses um, and shows that, you know, whatever his circumstances are, he can rejoice because he knows that God is in it, that God has ordained his circumstances, and that in the end, Christ will be exalted through his circumstances. And so he rejoices in that. One commentator, he writes concerning this portion of Paul's letter that it's, it's sort of a biographical prologue of this epistle. Um, showing a, a, a small snapshot of Paul in, in his, his life. <clears throat> and he goes on and he says, um, Philippians, these verses, 12 to 26, takes the central theme of partnership in the gospel and exemplifies it being worked out in very difficult circumstances in the life of Paul. Several helpful lessons to consider are, one, God's use of negative circumstances to bring about positive ends. In verses 12 to 14. Two, the great impact of courageous witness for Christ, even in unfavorable circumstances. Verses 13 to 14. Three, the possibility of sharing the gospel of Christ with wrong motives. Verses 15 to 18. Four, the vital importance of prayer to support the ministry. In verse 19. Five, the necessity of dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, especially in connection with prayer. And then six... Christ as the Christian's reason for living. Christ as a Christian's reason for living in verses 20 to 21, as even Paul ends this um, little section, this thought, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we can see in this section and even in the, the uh, previous verses how uh, Paul is rejoicing in his circumstances, in circumstances which many uh, lesser believers, many of us may um, grumble, may complain, and he's rejoicing because he sees God's providence in it all. He, he sees God working through him, through uh, the people around him. He sees the gospel going out, and so he rejoices in the fact that God is being glorified in and through him, that Christ is being exalted, that the gospel is going out, and so he can, uh, in a sense, uh, say he's rejoicing in the Lord always. And he can tell us to rejoice. And throughout these few verses, I really see uh, six reasons why Paul rejoices here, or he will rejoice here in this passage. And first, Paul rejoices or will rejoice 
Because he knows that Christ will be exalted in time. Christ will be exalted in time as he says at the end of verse 18. And, and I kind of split this up in, in most, um, if you know, uh, that our verse numbers and our chapter numbers were not originally in the Bible. They were added in around the 1500s. And for the most part, the person who did it did a great job. <laughs> Uh, we would probably do far worse. But sometimes there's a thought that's in the middle of a verse and, or um, it would be better to break it up. And here, that's the case here in verse 18. I, I believe that the end, yes, and I will rejoice should be in verse 19. But he says, I will rejoice. He, he, he ta talks about um, rejoicing in his present circumstances and, and what's happening uh, amongst uh, the preachers in Rome. And then he says, yes, and I will rejoice. There's this sense that he knows that Christ will be exalted in time, whether in the past, in the present, or the future. He can rejoice in, in whatever time frame because he knows that Christ will be exalted. He will be exalted. He'll be exalted in Paul's current circumstances, and he'll be exalted in Paul's future circumstances. Whatever case may be, Paul can look at his circumstances. He can look at the world and everything that's happening around him from this lens of a biblical worldview, understanding that God is in control of everything, and especially in uh, concern to the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of his kingdom, every um, little circumstance, everything, every coincidence, everything that just seems trite or trivial, he knows will work out for his good and for the glory of God. But um, definitely in his circumstances, he can see it more clearly as the gospel's going out. And he sees this in his current circumstances. As he said in verse 12, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he writes that in a sense to put the Philippians' hearts at ease. Because they send Epaphroditus there to see how he's doing. They don't know exactly what's going on. They didn't have the media that we have nowadays. Uh, information traveled much more slowly. And so they send a messenger. And he's, he's almost, you can almost uh, sense his excitement. Hey, hey guys, let, let me tell you what's happening. This is great. This is wonderful. I'm in prison. Everything's wonderful. Because the gospel's going out. And my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so he's rejoicing in his present circumstances because he knows that Christ will be exalted in whatever time. Whatever time he is placed in, whatever circumstance, he sees that Christ is exalted in his, his uh, current circumstances. And because of that, he knows that Christ will be exalted in the future. In the future, because he says in verse 19, beginning for I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And there's certain words as we read through the Bible and, and just grammatically we read certain words and, and they're sort of uh, conjunctions or connecting words that point back. They point backwards. One of those words is for or we see this demonstrative pronoun this and we ask that, have to ask ourselves what what is this that he's talking about? Because he says, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Well, what is this? That's the, the previous thought of the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ will turn out for his salvation. 
In some of your translations, they, they might have that word salvation. It might be deliverance. And, and that might be a slightly better translation. A more literal translation is salvation. Um, soteria in the Greek. But it, it is salvations used in, in many different ways. Um, primarily through the Bible, it's, it, it's, it's salvation from sin. It's, it's uh, uh, eternal life. But there's also a sense, and we especially see this in the Old Testament, where salvation can be used, or that term can be used to talk of a deliverance from a, a trial or a, a, just a, a bad circumstance, a, a del- having, being, having your life saved, um, being saved from, uh, say, war or famine. And this is, in a sense, how this, this word is being used. Not in the sense of salvation from sin, but a, a sense of a deliverance out of prison. That he knows that the proclamation of Christ, the advance of the gospel, will in some way work out for his deliverance. And, and there's this emphasis, when, when he says, for I know, this, this word I know... Um, it's really emphatic. It, this is, this is a, a full confidence. It, it's not just a factual, logical knowledge. It, this is, I am confident that this will turn out for my salvation. Christ will be exalted in due time. This you know, reminds me of you know, uh, one of the psalms I go to when I'm discouraged or when I'm depressed. And, and one of the psalms that... Um, I uh, tell people, I counsel people to go to, to meditate upon when they're discouraged or depressed is uh, Psalm 42 or Psalm 43. They're, they're both pairs, and some people believe that they were all one, they were one psalm, but nonetheless, there's this phrase, uh, hope in God, for shall, I shall again praise him. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And this is, in a sense, the thought that Paul is having here. He's hoping in God. He's not discouraged or depressed, but he's, in a sense, hoping in God because he knows he will again praise him. Christ will be exalted in time. One commentator writes that on this, this, these two words of my salvation or my deliverance that... Um, Paul's trial had probably begun. You think of, um, you know, the, the courtroom picture or uh, a courtroom theme of, of the trial proceedings. That he's in house arrest, but the trial proceedings have already begun. They're deliberating. But he goes on, he says, he was confident that either release or death would advance the cause of Christ. But he is leaning towards release. He doesn't know precisely, but he knows that the proclamation of Christ will turn out for his deliverance. And so he can rejoice in that. He can rejoice in the fact that Christ will be exalted in due time. He's exalted in his current circumstances, and he will be exalted in his future circumstances. So we see that Paul rejoices and will rejoice because he knows that Christ will be exalted in time. And second... He rejoices because Christ will be exalted through the church. Christ will be exalted through the church because he goes on and he says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers 
and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Your prayers, the, the prayers of the church. Christ will be exalted through the church by their prayers. Prayers for him specifically, but also prayers for those around him. Because he knows they're, they're not just praying for him. They're praying for those around him. And, and we, we know that when we, we pray for someone that's in a trial or a circumstance, especially you know, someone that has either a disease or an accident, they, they go to the hospital, or one of our fellow believers, and we pray for them, we pray for wisdom for the doctors and nurses, but what else do we pray for? We pray for their witness. We pray that God would strengthen their faith, that they would be a witness to those doctors, those nurses, the people that come around them. And, and especially uh, for Paul, being an apostle, being a missionary, being a church planter and evangelist, the church at Philippi is not only praying for him, but for his witness, for his bold faith, for those around him. And because of that, he knows that he will be uh, delivered. One of the first verses I um, heard, I probably memorized, this was before I was even a believer. Um, and uh, I was trying to uh, get a plaque made for another believer in um, my, my unit. And, um, and I, I wasn't a believer, but I knew he was a strong believer. And I, I wanted to make a plaque for him because he was, he was getting out of the military. And um, so I went to the, the, uh, the chaplain's office and asked some of the, the guys there. And um, they shared this verse with me, James 5.16. And in the King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Availeth much. And this is what Paul is resting in this principle. That their prayers will availeth much. They will accomplish much. I like what John Calvin writes in his commentary on this passage. He says this, He who depends for help on the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God. He who depends for help on the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God. You know, he, he knows that God hears our prayers. God promises to answer our prayers according to his will. Calvin goes on and he says, In the meantime, nothing is detracted from the unmerited goodness of God on which depend our prayers and what is obtained by means of them. He's saying that even though God uses prayers, there, there's nothing that's detracted from our praying from his unmerited goodness or his grace. Uh, you know, there's, there's passages in the Bible that, you know, we, we say they, they seem to maybe contradict one another. But the, no, no scripture contradicts one another, and so there, there might be some sort of tension in our minds. There's no tension in God's minds, but there's tension in our minds. And one of those things is, you know, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You know, God will do whatever he does. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and yet at the same time, he calls us to pray. But when we pray, it's not as if we're twisting God's arm to do something or if he finally gives in and, and is like, oh, well, I never thought about doing that, but, you know, since you asked me, sure. <laughs> no, he already knows from beginning to end everything that he's going to do or will be done. Nothing escapes his knowledge. He knows it all. 
before the foundation of the world, yet he commands us to pray. And yet he also says, as Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. So there is a sense of attention there in our minds. But God uses our prayers. He commands us to pray. He answers our prayers. And he uses our prayers as a means almost to the end which he had already ordained beforehand. It's enough to make our, you know, heads explode. Like, you know, we just can't wrap our minds around it. But we know that he commands it. And so we pray. And we want to pray. And we know that he answers prayer. And so, as Calvin says, he who depends for help on the prayers of the saints relies on the promise of God. And so, Paul knows that Christ will be exalted through the church by their prayers, but not only by their prayers, but by their partnership. By their partnership, because uh, when we pray, um, prayer does a lot more than just, you know... um, Seeking God's favor, seeking God's will, um, submitting to God's will. It, it, it does something, we, we primarily look at prayer on the vertical level, us and God, but it does something on the horizontal level between one another. Because as we pray for one another, what we're doing is we're drawing close to God, and as we draw close to God, we inevitably draw close to one another and it strengthens the bonds with one another. And so in our intercessory prayers for one another, we are in a sense drawing closer to one another as we draw closer to God. And so there's a sense that um, as the church is praying for Paul, they are strengthening their partnership with Paul and with one another and so that their unity is being strengthened. Christ is going to be exalted uh, through the church by their prayers, but also by their partnership, their unity in their prayers, and through their concern for Paul and, and for the kingdom of God. Listen to what William Barclay writes in his commentary on this passage. He writes this, which is a pretty lengthy quote, but I want you to hear this. Uh, One of the loveliest things in Paul's letters is a way in which he asks again and again for his friend's prayers. Beloved, he writes to the Thessalonians, pray for us. Finally, brothers and sisters, he writes, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified everywhere. He writes that in 1 Thessalonians 5.25 and 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Barclay goes on to say, he says to the Corinthians, you must help us by prayer, 2 Corinthians 1.11. He writes that he is sure through, that through Philemon's prayers he will be given back to his friends. Before he sets out on his perilous journey to Jerusalem, he writes to the church at Rome asking for their prayers in Romans 15.30. Which I, fo- I found this really interesting because he asks for, he writes this letter to the, Ro- to the Romans before he goes on this journey to Jerusalem asking for their prayers and then In that journey, through that series of events, in that journey to Jerusalem, that brings him back to Rome, where the Roman believers are. It's interesting. Barclay goes on to say, Paul was never too full of his own importance to remember that he needed the prayers of his friends. He never talked to people as if he could do everything and they could do nothing. He always remembered that neither he nor they could do anything without the help of God. 
Apart from me, you can do no thing. Which leads us to the third reason why Paul rejoices and will rejoice. Because Christ will be exalted through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. He goes on, he says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ will be exalted through the Spirit. And this is, in a sense, uh, alluding to, pointing to the Holy Spirit. Um, God is triune. He's, he's one and three, all in the same. And so sometimes we see this, uh, this juxtaposition of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, they are one and the same almost, but distinct persons. This is alluding to the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, throughout the whole book of Acts and the New Testament in, in general, and e even the church age, is uh, the, the predominant character, the active agent, is the Holy Spirit. Um, as many have said before, you know, we read that, the Acts of the Apostles and that, and that, that book, which is essentially a, a, a New Testament history. And it could rightly be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working through the apostles, through the disciples, and the Spirit is working here uh, through uh, Paul, through the believers, and he trusts in the fact that his deliverance will come through the provision of the Spirit. Christ will be exalted through the Spirit, but we have to ask the question, how exactly? How precisely will uh, his deliverance come out by the provision of the Spirit? And I, I believe it will come out in really two ways, two main ways. First, in empowerment and guidance. That's one of the main things that, that the Holy Spirit does in a believer's life. When we are born again, we are regenerated, we are, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to live holy lives, to, uh, to resist temptation and sin, to fight sin, and to strive towards holiness and obedience. The Holy Spirit empowers us, and it empowers us to obey, to um, to minister. It, it, it definitely, as we can see throughout the book of Acts and through Paul's writing, that the Holy Spirit empowered Paul and the apostles and all the disciples to preach the gospel. And this is, in a sense, what Paul is alluding to, that the, the provision of the Spirit will be by way of empowerment for him to preach the gospel and to give a defense of the gospel as he stands on trial, as he, he preaches the gospel to uh, those Roman guards one-on-one -on -one and, and any administrators or servants that come in, uh, but also as, you know, you take the courtroom scene as, as he will inevitably stand before Caesar and, and all the, the um, Roman uh, administrators and, and uh, government leaders, and he will have to give a defense. And we can assume that it will be similar to that defense that he gives at the end of the book of Acts to uh, King Agrippa and Festus and Felix. It will be similar. And he needs boldness. He needs empowerment. And he's trusting in the provision of the Spirit to give him that empowerment. But also, he's trusting in the provision of the Spirit to guide him. 
to guide him in circumstances, to providentially work things out for his deliverance, to uh, bring that uh, Roman guard in at the, at the precise time to uh, you know, talk to or to bring good news. or you know, We know how um, those circumstances in our lives, or we read in, uh, throughout Scripture those providential circumstances that we may call divine appointments or happen the right uh, the right thing at the right time. The right person came at the right time. Um, we see that, you know, that, that phrase that we know from the book of Esther. Perhaps you were brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. And that's true for all of our lives, but there's points in our lives where we see God's providence put on clear display so we can see, see that, well, maybe God has put me in these circumstances for such a time as this. And so Paul's hoping in the provision of the Spirit that the Spirit will guide him in those circumstances. And just as the Holy Spirit has led him in the past, and we think of the, the vision that, that to, uh, of the man in Macedonia to come over to help Paul, and previous to that, the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit had restricted him from going into Europe. The Holy Spirit not only empowers us, but he guides us. And and Paul knows that Christ will be exalted through the Spirit's work in empowerment and guidance. Second, he knows that Christ will be exalted through the Spirit's work in regeneration and illumination, in saving those in power around him. That, that Paul will be delivered through the provision of the Spirit in the, in the sense that the Spirit is saving uh, guardsmen. He's saving uh, people, people of Caesar's household. As Paul will say later um, at the end of Philippians that um, those from Caesar's household greet you. People that have been converted. And in the Holy Spirit converting the people around Paul that's going to work out for his deliverance because they'll be more apt to, um, to help him to say, hey, what this man is saying is true. I know, I know, I, I've seen it. I've been forgiven of my sins. I, I've, I understand. I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit that he speaks about. That Paul trusts that the Spirit will save those in power around him, the Praetorian Guard, administrators, and that the Holy Spirit will then illuminate their minds to understand why Paul is there, the purposes and advancement of God's kingdom, uh, uh, why reality is the way it is, uh, all things concerning a biblical worldview. That they will be able to say as Paul sits in defense and gives his defense and preaches the gospel and gives his testimony, the people in Caesar's household um, that have come to faith will, will rightly say, you know, Everything he says is true. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That will be a provision of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul rejoices in that fact that Christ will be exalted through the Spirit and he will rejoice in that. Fourth, Paul will rejoice because Christ will be exalted through his ministry. Christ will be exalted through his ministry. As he goes on in verse 20, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I, I will not be put to shame 
in anything, in anything. What is he talking about there? Being put to shame. He means as he gives his defense, as he stands on trial, as he, in a sense, has to explain, as any prisoner does, so what are you in here for? You know, and he has to not only explain to the guardsmen and everybody else, but to uh, those in power what he is in there for. His whole testimony and everything, as he shares his life, shares the gospel, shares the scriptures, he's not going to be put to shame in that. He, he will not be uh, found out to be a liar, or to be untrue, to be foolish. He will found, be found out to be true, to be honest, to be forthright, to be speaking the truth. His defense will be uh, vindicated. Paul will not be put to shame. He, he, Christ will be exalted through his ministry, through his whole life. Everything that he has sacrificed and he suffered for Christ, everything that he has said for Christ, everything that he has done for Christ... Christ will be exalted through his ministry in, in a sense in two ways. In the fact that Paul's preaching will be vindicated. Not just his preaching on trial or his preaching in Caesar's household or his preaching to the Roman guards, but all the preaching he has done in Roman cities, in uh, Jewish cities, in Jewish synagogues, all the preaching that he has done from the time of his conversion up until now will be vindicated. Everything that he has stood for, everything that he has sacrificed for, everything that he has done will be vindicated because Christ will be exalted through his ministry. And he rejoices in the, that fact. He trusts in that fact. He's confident in that fact. And second, he, he knows that Paul's, his actions will be vindicated as well. Christ will be exalted through his ministry in the fact that uh, Paul's actions will be vindicated. Not just the fact that he has preached, but the fact that he has left Israel, that he has gone on these missionary travels, that he has gone into the Greco-Roman world, that he has sacrificed career and, and notoriety and social standing and status and money, everything, to advance the gospel. He has suffered. He suffered greatly. And, and so, you know, his whole life, you know, raises a question, um, especially for unbelievers around him, why? Why would you do all this, Paul? Why would you sacrifice so much? Why would you work so hard? Why would you endure such suffering and persecution? Because of the gospel, because of Christ, because what he has done in my life, because this is true, because the, the, the kingdom of God is coming, because there is a judgment and all men will be judged. And there's only one way, there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this is a Christ that I proclaim to you that you may be saved, that he has overlooked the times of ignorance and he's commanding all men everywhere to repent. So repent and, and trust in him and believe in him and be saved. Paul knows that Christ will be exalted through his ministry. He rejoices in that fact despite whatever suffering or trials or sacrifices may come. Fifth, 
Paul will rejoice, and he rejoices because Christ will be exalted through his life. Through his life. His life. He says that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He's, he's saying Christ will be magnified or maybe other translations have glorified or exalted. He will be exalted. He will be glorified in my body, through my body, through what has happened in my body. He's saying that Christ will be exalted through his life, his, his life in really in two ways. Because he says even now, when he says even now, he's saying that Christ will be exalted in two categories of his life, his biography and his biology. His biography and his biology. Because he says even now as always, meaning he's always been magnified in my body from past to present, from the time I was born to the time I was converted to the time I was thrust forth into ministry and all that has happened in between. He's always been magnified in my body, but he will even now be magnified in my body, whatever may come about. Christ will be exalted through his life and in his biography, in his past, as he gives an account or a testimony or a defense of his life, as he said um, earlier that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel, to give a defense of the gospel. And Christ will be exalted in that, that sense through his life, in his life. One commentator writes this, he says, This expression, in all boldness, conveys a thought of openness, courage, boldness, or confidence, whether toward God or people. Prominent are instances in which this quality is viewed in relation to speech. In verse 20, Paul may be thinking in terms of his coming testimony before his imperial judges. It would not be, e it would not be as easy to give a courageous witness in those circumstances apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's alluding to, that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body. That, that the Spirit will supply the boldness. He'll give an account of his life, his biography, as he gives witness, as he testifies, and then Christ will be magnified in his biography, in a sense. This is why he writes at the end of Ephesians, and you know, as we've been going through this letter, and, and just as we, we did when we were going through the, the, his letter to the church at Colossae, that these letters are the prison epistles, and they're all um, written around the same time. And so parallel passages are in Ephesians. And one such passage, why he writes, um, we, we see this, he writes something at the end of that section in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, as he writes concerning the armor of God. And, and we, we like that passage. It gives us courage. Um, it, but sometimes we, we take it um, a little bit differently than we should. But nonetheless, at the end of that passage, 
um, as he talks about the armor of God and these different aspects of the armor that we are to put on to help us in spiritual warfare and living the Christian life, he ends that passage by saying in verse 18, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the spirit. And as one of my professors would say, the prayer is in a sense almost like the, the cords or the things that, that tie it all together, all the pieces of the armor. And Paul's um, telling the Ephesians to pray at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then he says this, which points back to our passage, as well as on my behalf, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, so that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And he, as he writes that to the Ephesians, you, you can picture him thinking here in this, this uh, house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, that you can picture him thinking about his coming trial, that he would... Uh, give his testimony, that he would give his defense, that he would testify with all boldness so that Christ would be magnified in his body. Christ would be exalted through his life in his biography. But also as he speaks about Christ being exalted through his life, it's not only his biography, his past, everything that's happened to him as he testifies, gives his testimony, but it's his actual physical body as well, his biology that, that, that Christ will be exalted through. Because he knows, as he alludes to the Corinthians, that his body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and he will give his body as a sacrifice almost. He's willing, he doesn't know how his case will turn out, but he's willing to sacrifice his body, in a sense, for the case of Christ, for the cause of Christ, for the advancement of the gospel. He's willing to lay his life down as a drink offering, as he would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy. But he, he tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, as he's teaching the Corinthians about uh, holiness and separation and these concepts in, in, uh, to separate ourselves from everything unholy and to uh, live holy lives. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says this, Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your physical body, in the things you do with your body, the things you eat and drink and speak and, and the people you interact with and relate to, the, the actions you do, the habits, the behaviors, everything you do physically in this world, you're to glorify God in your body. And part of that is being willing to uh, deny yourself and to sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ, for the gospel, um, to glorify God in your body. And we can read throughout church history of many um, saints, many missionaries, many um, preachers, many evangelists who have, in a sense, done just that, have sacrificed their health and um, other things to advance the gospel. Read of, of many people like uh, William Carey or Hudson Taylor or um, others who um, 
endured sicknesses and disease and uh, going to um, places that were unhealthy to advance the gospel, that they're glorifying God in their physical body um, by being willing to deny themselves to advance the kingdom of God. Paul would um, elaborate further on this as he speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about this concept of running a race and that he disciplines himself as an athlete. Says 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Gospel, evangelizing, counseling, uh, planting churches, we see that for him to live as Christ in the sense that um, in service of Christ, living for Christ. As one commentator writes, Paul's life is not a matter of seeking his own comfort or advancement. It is all about seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom. To live is tantamount to serving Christ. To live is tantamount to serving Christ. This is what he's all about. It's what he's all about. And, and you know, we know people, and perhaps it's, it's some of us, that we have hobbies or we have certain things, uh, maybe it's our career, that the people around us know that's what Joe is all about. That's what Bob is all about. That's what Susie is all about. She just can't wait to do X, Y, or Z. She's all about it. That's her life. This is Paul's life. To live for him is Christ. But there's also a, 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 a second way that we can see um, what he means by this, to live as Christ, his attitude towards life, is that to live as Christ is a sense that Christ is life. Christ himself is life. He, he's speaking of it almost ontologically, or meaning in his being. Christ himself is life. As he says in Galatians 2.20, this is a verse that many of us have probably memorized. It's a good verse to memorize, especially for new believers. Uh, just a, a, a great verse to guide us through our Christian lives. Is, as Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's saying, Christ is living in me. Christ is living through me. I, I, I live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, Christ is life. Christ is my life. Christ is eternal life. And there's this, this uh, sense, this allusion to that, that doctrine or that principle of union with Christ. That those who are born again, we are, um, in a sense, uh, 
baptized into Christ's death and we are raised with him to new life. And that's why we baptize, why we immerse people when we come to faith, when we're born again. That's a symbol of what happened spiritually, that we died with Christ and we will be raised again with Christ. Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 6 that Christ lives in us and through us and we are to live for Christ. Christ himself is life. He is eternal life. And there's also this concept of um, the two men of Adam and Christ that all have died in Adam, that Adam through Adam only comes death, but through Christ comes life. To live is Christ ontologically in our being, but to live is Christ also means in our service. This is Paul's attitude towards life. His life is wrapped up in Christ. It's all about Christ. But then he says this, to die is gain. To die is gain. And those two uh, phrases, they go together. And, and they're, they're paired together because dying can only be gain if living is for Christ. If, if you're living for anything else, then dying is not gain. And dying is gain because he gains Christ. In the end, he gains Christ. He's with Christ. He's with God. He, he no longer has uh, this sin-cursed uh, uh, body to carry around and living in a sin-cursed world. He no longer has this struggle with sin. He, he no longer lives in an evil world. He's with Christ. He's, he's with him in glory. And, and there's this, you know, you, you can read commentaries or, or uh, devotionals on this this verse, or, or listen to many preachers on this verse, and there's this common illustration that's used in every, almost every sermon I've heard on this, and, and it's it's good because it helps you to think. You know, if you, as I alluded to before, if you know you're that person, you know your your life is is sports or fishing. I mean, we we live in a place and where you know there's one team, and you know the Buckeyes. And there's, there's fans. You've seen them. Everything. Everything is, you know, down to little trinkets. You know their life is the Ohio State Buckeyes. That is their life. But for some people, it's fishing. For other people, it's hunting. For some, it may be quilting. It, it may be cars. It may be money. It may be vacations. Whatever it may be, that, that may be your life may be wrapped up in that thing, that event, that um, whatever it may be, that hobby. That's your life. But if that is your life, then dying is not gain. It can't be gain because dying would be lost because then you lose all of that. You can't take it with you. It's gone. There's only one thing you could put in that blank that would make dying gain, and that's Christ. Anything you put in that blank besides Christ would make dying loss. If Christ is your life and to live is Christ, then dying's the greatest thing in the world. Because you lose all the temporal trappings of this sin-cursed world and you gain Christ. You see him as he is. You know him. You fellowship with him. You're face to face with him. Dying is gain. Dying is the greatest thing for you. 
And this is why Paul will go on and say, I, I don't know what to choose between the two. To go on and live in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me. But to die means I'll be with Christ. Now, I'm hard-pressed between the two because I'd rather be with Christ, but it's better for your sake that I would remain on in the flesh so I can keep on serving you. But dying would be gain to him. Turn over a page or two in your Bibles to Philippians 3, and, and we get this um, a bit more clear as he talks about gain. And, and almost his perspective on life, his life philosophy. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 11, he says this, But whatever things were gained to me, Whatever was in that blank, whatever was in that category that I thought was life, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss for all things and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ. And that word rubbish... The, the Greek word could be better translated excrement, dung, sewage, something because, you know, trash or rubbish, you know, as some people say one man's trash is another man's treasure. Some things trash you could dig out and maybe you could redeem. But no, the, the underlying word is the worst you could possibly think. It, it's actually excrement. All things, that, that's what I consider. And that, that category, all my, my self-righteous religious deeds, all my service, everything I count but excrement in order to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Whatever things were gained to me in the past, whatever people would think would be gained, either in the religious world or the secular world or the business world, whatever people would possibly think would be gained, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, for gaining Christ, so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and he's not talking about work salvation He's talking about knowing Christ more through his service, through his self-denial. You know, there's a sense of, of intimacy with Christ uh, comes from living like Christ did and being willing to sacrifice yourself for the service of others and to glorify God, to know Christ in his sufferings, as he would say in another passage. To die is gain. To, because you gain Christ, but it's also gain in the service of Christ. That he knows that if, if he is to die for his faith, if, if the trial of comes out that the, the verdict is death, then that would be gain. One commentator writes, he says, Paul no doubt meant that for any man or woman in Christ to die would be gain, whatever form the death took. 
But the death that he has specifically in mind for himself in the present situation is execution in consequence of an adverse judgment in an imperial court. If such a death in the service of Christ crowned a life spent in the service of Christ, it would be gained not to Paul alone, but to the cause of Christ throughout the world. He's alluding to that fact that, the, you know, what Tertullian said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if they executed him, it, it would not only be gained for him in the fact that he would gain Christ and he would be with Christ, but it would be gained for the cause of Christ. Because it would still advance the gospel. And the, the primary application for us throughout this whole passage, in you know, if you're not thinking about it, you, you should be, but for most of us, it, it screams at us, it confronts us, it probably convicts us, is this question that we are confronted with is, what's our attitude towards life and death? What is your attitude towards life and death? Can, can you say, as, as Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Most of us want to say that. We want to say that, but we have to be honest with ourselves. Do we really say that with our actions? Do we say that with our behaviors? Do we say that with our lives? It's easy to say with your mouth. Do we say that with our heart? What's your attitude towards death? Because it's going to come. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. We will all face judgment. We will all die, and we don't know when that will be. Most of us, you know, put that off. Well, it's going to happen when I'm 80 or 90 or, you know, even, you know, I, I spent, you know, two years on hospice ministering to people, and even people in their 80s and 90s would put it off farther. <laughs> it's, and even on hospice, it's just totally diluted that, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to get through this cancer, heart disease, whatever. Even if you do, even if, let, let's just say you beat the cancer, you're still in your 90s. You ain't got, and sometimes I, you're still in your 90s. But even for young people, we don't know. Just a couple months ago, we had a, a funeral here for a young lady in her early 20s. You know, I grew up, my, my brother had, had cancer as a teenager. He survived, but through that ordeal, we went to cancer camps for kids. We'd see kids, 7, 8, 9, 10, leukemia, whatever the case, and many of them did not survive. We don't know. We don't know when an accident will come, but we know that it has been appointed unto man once to die. Once and I, and after that comes judgment. There is an appointment for every one of us. We will not be early and we will not be late. It will be on God's timeline, and then after that, he will judge us. He will judge us for every deed. He will judge us for every careless word. He will judge us for every bitter thought. He will judge us perfectly because he is the perfect judge of the universe. And he's perfect in his holiness. He's perfect in his righteousness. He's perfect and he's right to judge us. 
And there's only one way you will pass that judgment, and that's through Jesus Christ, who came to this world to live a life that none of us could live, to live that perfect life, obeying his law perfectly, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice to die the perfect death, which, which all of us deserve, so that through him we can be forgiven, so that God can be just, be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. So that God could uphold his justice and his righteousness, but still be forgiving and merciful and loving and kind to sinners such as us. And the call is to repent from your sins, to trust in him, and then to live for him. So the question is, what's your attitude towards life and death? Can you say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because though you live, and whatever you live for, that's what you live for, but you will die. You will die. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the conviction that these words bring. Whether we are in Christ or not, these words convict us. They confront us. They confront us in our apathy, in our complacency, in just our familiarity with this world with just thinking that life's going to go on and on and on like it did the day before and the week before and that that uh, we're just going to going to carry out our plans as as we have thought but one day we will die and we will face judgment and even for believers we will be judged with how we have used our gifts whether we've used our time, talents, and treasures for ourselves and for our own comfort and pleasure, or whether we have taken those, those giftings and used them for you, uh, uh, to glorify you, to advance your kingdom and your gospel. Whatever the case, we will be judged. So Lord, help us to reflect upon these things, to help us to consider whether or not we are living for Christ or for ourselves. And whether or not dying would be gain, help us to consider and help us to reflect that we may live in a way which is, glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.